Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God. You can connect with God, and we can help. Well, a few years ago, my wife, Erin, and I, we were down in Pagosa Springs visiting some family, and we showed up largely without a plan. We just wanted to see my little cousin, who was going to be heading off to college. And that was until over dinner, my uncle kind of snaps his fingers and he says, I got it. Tomorrow's Color Fest. You're going to love it. And we had no idea what Color Fest was. And if you hadn't heard of it, it is the day when balloonists from all around the country and even all around the world descend on the little town of Pagosa Springs to fly their hot air balloons. Now, my uncle let us in on a bit of a local secret. You see, if you show up before sunrise, when all of the pilots are gathering around, a lot of them will be looking for volunteer crew. Now, if you've ever done a hot air balloon ride before, they can get pretty pricey, like three, $400 a person. And so the thing is, if you volunteer, you serve as crew, you help launch the balloon, and no paying guests show up, then you get to go up in the hot air balloon. So I was sold immediately. I was like, this sounds awesome. We're doing it. Aaron was like, I'm not sold. But the next morning, I wake her up before sunrise and we head on down to the creek where all of the pilots are gathering. So we're walking around and there are people in very official looking outfits. We definitely stick out like we don't belong. But eventually I hear somebody yelling, volunteers, volunteers anybody. So my hand shoots up and I'm like, yes, that's us. So we meet a crew chief named Katie. She takes us over to this pickup truck. She, sh- she shows us all of these different balloon parts and she starts giving us these instructions. First, we're gonna roll out the envelope. We're gonna set up the skirt, the panels, the tethers, a whole bunch of information that was kind of hard to follow, but we did it. It took us a little longer than the other crews, but eventually we set up this hot air balloon. Now, if you've never seen a hot air balloon up close, when the pilot starts to begin pumping hot air into it, think of it kind of like this king cobra that like rises up out of its coil, except, you know, only being about this tall, hot air balloons get over a hundred feet large. So it's like a multi-story building that is just like growing right in front of you. And it's beautiful, all different colors, greens, purples, blues. So once it had risen to its full height, the pilot, Mike says, okay, Are you ready to hop in? Are you ready to go for a ride? So we step in and hot air balloons are kind of interesting because they're more quiet and gentle than you would expect. You just kind of start to like lift off then you're 100 feet above the ground, 200 feet, 1,000, 2,000 feet. And as we ascend, I start to look around and it is just beautiful, beautiful. Not only is there the sunrise, you can see balloons of every color and every color of the rainbow floating around red, blue, orange, green. And it's like the kind of beauty where you just like start to wiggle a little bit, right? Cause it's like so overwhelming for all of your senses. So we're, we're flying and I, I turn to Mike, the pilot, and I'm like, oh, this must be why you guys launch at sunrise because of the beauty and the color of, of the sunrise. And he's like, well, not exactly. It's so that our balloons fly more efficiently. You see the balloon only gets lift based on the contrast and temperature. So the air inside of the balloon has to be much hotter than the air outside of the balloon. And sunrise always happens to be the coldest point of the day. So that's why we launch at sunrise. And later that day, as we were driving home, 
I remember thinking about that fact in how, in that sense, balloon rides mirror the human experience. You see, every day we arise to find that our lives are composed by two opposing forces. We see that we rely on warmth, kindness, goodness, love in order to keep us afloat in a cold world that's filled with things like grief, death, depression. For example, this, this past week, I was down in Florida visiting a friend who's battling stage four cancer. And when those types of cold headwinds threaten to overwhelm us and collapse us, we try to fill up our days with warmth. And so we went out on a boat ride, we ate seafood. It's laughter, celebration, joy that keeps us afloat. And the Bible's authors talk about this contrast all throughout the text. Sometimes it's subtle. For example, uh, Jesus bloodied and dying on a cross, saying, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. You see, cold people, kind, warm Savior. Other times it's a little bit more direct. It's like John writing, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, for the biblical writers, there's a very clear separation between good or light and evil or darkness. Now, the point that a difference between these two categories exists probably doesn't sound very strange. It probably seems obvious, in fact. However, in the context of today's modern culture, this is now becoming a very strange thing to say. It cuts against a new definition of morality that we've raised up while we began to stuff down the truth that we get from the Genesis story. And so we're gonna look at that story today. And along the way, we're gonna step into what for many of us is the single most challenging question of faith. It is the question that distances non-believers, that casts doubt in the mind of believers, and it's this. If God is good, how could he create evil? Why would he allow suffering to enter into our world? Now, if you'd like to open up the Connect app, or if you have a Bible, we also have Bibles in the back. Our text for today is gonna to be Genesis 3 to 11. Most of our time is gonna be spent camping out inside of Genesis 3. So feel free to turn there. And before we dig in, I'm gonna pray for us um, and ask that the Spirit would speak on a, a rather sticky subject this morning. So, dear Lord, thank you again for the chance to gather together to feel your warmth and just the kindness and the goodness of community who knows you, who loves you. Pray, Lord, that uh, you would help me to speak clearly this morning and by your Spirit that um, you would give us understanding as we dig in. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. So to start, let's recap a key point that we finished last week with. And this was in Genesis 2.25, and it says this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So a spoiler alert here, we're about to drop from the heights of human experience, like total innocence, perfect relationship with God, all the way down into total depravity, or what we just kind of call everyday life. Just here to encourage you this morning. So let's, uh, let's read through the text. We're going to read this um, one big chunk, verses 1 through 13, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse. So the um, story reads this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to them, well, more specifically called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, there are a number of observations that I find pretty fascinating in this passage. So we're going to go through this verse by verse and break it down. So in verse 1, notice that we don't really get much backstory on this new character that's introduced into the story, the serpent, but for the fact it says that God made the serpent. So in verse 1, it says the serpent more crafty than any of the wild animals, key, the Lord God had made. And that's a little confusing, isn't it? Like if we believe in a sovereign God, but not only that, a God who is good, who is loving, why would he create a serpent that was used to bring death and destruction into the world? Like if God could have chosen not to create the serpent, then why would he create the serpent? Now that's a key question. Hold on to it for just a minute. We're going to come back and we're going to unpack that. But next in verse 1, notice that what we see here is that temptation starts with a question that is actually referencing truth. See, the serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, there's not like blatant or outright evil here. Right? The serpent isn't saying to Eve, turn against God, rebel. It's a relatively neutral question, and this is the insidious nature of sin that we're going to see here. The serpent is chipping away at Eve's trust in who God is, because God's character, his nature, He's a generous, he's a loving father. He gave Eve all of the garden. And yet, if you look at this question, God's made to look like the stingy overlord who is withholding the best from his daughter, Eve. And I mean, how relatable is that, right? Like, how often do you look out in the world? I do this all the time. I forget the things that I do have. And I only end up thinking like, how is it that they have that, they drive that car and live in that house? Right now, here's the next thing to note about the serpent. He's described as crafty or cunning or shrewd, depending on the translation that you have. Now, in the ancient language, there's not that same negative connotation on this word that we may place on it in our language. In fact, this is a play on words in the Hebrew language. So the choice of the term arum here is very intentional because it shows the irony of what Adam and Eve are seeking. They want to be made a rum or wise in their own eyes. And instead, what do they discover? They discover that they're naked or that they're a rum. That's the play on words. Now, if we continue to look at the original language and rem we remember what we just said about God here, right? His, his true nature, his character. What's interesting is that the serpent isn't using the more personal word for God, Yahweh. Instead, he's using the word Elohim. So the addition of this word Yahweh refers to a special relationship between God and mankind. That God's not just the divine creator or a cosmic being who's impersonal, but that there's a loving relationship there. And so what the serpent is doing here is decoupling sin from an offense against another person. He's removing the relationship.
Because you see, sin, in essence, is deeply relational by nature. And it's very interesting to look at how Eve then, as she sins, she no longer uses the word Yahweh in the original text. Because when we forget who God is, who we are, and who we are to each other, we begin to redefine truth, almost as if we're God. And I think that that's really important. So let me repeat that one more time. When we forget who God is, who we are, and who we are to each other, we begin to redefine truth for ourselves. And to forget relationship, it's a core human failure. And it is why in the Bible, kind of a fascinating fact, the most frequently given command is to remember, not to obey or to do or don't do, because we're prone to forget God's love and his generosity and his character toward us. Instead, we believe a lie about him and the life that he designed for us. So let's carry on. We're going to go to verse 3. So verse 3 to recap said, But God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now this is where the serpent recaps again and says, Well, you certainly won't die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, note again that what the serpent is saying here, in some sense, isn't a lie, right? The couple doesn't like drop dead as in poisoned. But what he's doing is he's twisting truth and he's turning it into something that makes sin appear to be desirable, something that the couple wants. And this is also a large part of what makes sin so insidious. You see, before the act of sin, it looks desirable. But if you step back into any moment of sin, what did it feel like afterward? Oftentimes, typically feels like a lot of shame, guilt, depending on the sin, even some self-loathing. And in that moment, that's when you're able to see what sin truly is. It was a lie. It was a manipulation of truth that plays to our desires. So in his book, Live No Lies, the pastor and writer John Mark Comer describes this as the primary strategy that Satan uses to enter death and destruction into our world. So here's the running thesis throughout the book. It says, deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful society. That's Satan's strategy. Now, the bottom row on this grid, those are the three enemies of the soul. In his book, Comer describes them this way, our war against the three enemies of the soul is not a war of guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies, it's more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. You see, when we sin, we're believing a lie about what will make us truly happy. It preys on our disordered desires and then we look around at society and it's like, oh, this, is, this feels normal. Ignatius of Loyola similarly defines sin this way, not trusting that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. I love that definition. Because what makes us happy is always living aligned with God's design. It's why he designed the world to operate as he does. So if we take the points that we've come through now, we summarize these things together. Sin is number one, it's relational. It's rooted in forgetting who God is and who we are to each other. Two, it preys on our desire, our disordered desire. And three, it fails to make us happy in the long run. So for example, in the short term, there may be a sexual thrill that comes with sleeping around. However, in the long run, if you look at the biological reality behind God's design, there's now fascinating research that shows that as the number of one's sexual partners increases, 
the body's ability to produce oxytocin or the happiness hormone decreases. And so you're less able to form the types of deep bonds and the type of relational joy that is a part of God's design for sex. So happiness is always living aligned with God's design. Meanwhile, sin is believing a lie about what will make us truly happy. So let's go on. Let's go to verse six now. So to recap, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, because of the sin that was preying on Eve's warped sense of desire, again, look at the description of the fruit. It says it was pleasing to the eye, desirable. She takes some and she gives some to Adam. And in many ways, it's like, how could she not, right? Because otherwise she would be walking around the garden every day, forgetting what it is that she does have and only looking at the one tree, the thing that she doesn't have, it would be eating at her, feeling totally discontent with everything that God gave. And that's the thing about sin, is it causes us to neglect the things that God has given us, and instead, we elevate our desires above Him. And the issue here is that when we don't believe our Father, we go our own way, what happens? We get hurt. And this is what we see in verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Now, this is the moment that we typically refer to as the fall of man. And it's when Adam and Eve, who had been given power over everything that God created, they were tempted by Satan working through that very same creation that they were called to rule over. Now, if you notice the description of Adam here, he's right with her, right? So he's no victim. In fact, Adam was called to protect Eve. Eve is called his helper. Now, it's ultimately Adam's passivity. It's not his action, a deliberate choice that he makes. It's a lack of action that allows death and destruction into the world. It's Adam's fault, it's not Eve's, it's not the serpent's. And so now, we come back to this big question. How could a God who is good create evil? And I think the sub-question that a lot of us hold here is why would we even desire a relationship with a God like that, somebody who allows suffering into the world? I think the English writer, activist, his name's Stephen Fry, articulated what a lot of us feel when he was asked, if you were ever to meet God face to face, what would you want to say to God? So this is what he has to say. How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. So the question, did God create sin? I believe God created love. Because based on this text, we have to conclude that the capacity for evil was inside of the couple from the very beginning. Notice one, God declared everything that he made good, including the serpent. Two, we don't see the serpent flat out coercing the couple into breaking God's designed order. And three, the couple had the freedom to decide, to choose what to do for themselves. And so the potential, kind of the metaphor that I think of here is kind of like potential energy that's only converted into kinetic energy when something new is put into motion. That potential was always there. It was chosen by Eve, allowed by Adam. And I think that that potential, it had to have been there. Because how can you have any type of love or relationship without the freedom to choose? For example, my wife, Erin, knows that I love her because I choose to be with her not every other woman in the world. If I was programmed to do that, love wouldn't be part of our relationship. 
Now, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. This is a bit of a long quote, but I think it's very good. So I'm going to read this over to you um, for a minute. Since I'm going to be reading this straight, let me get a quick drink. So if you've listened to any of my sermons, by the way, you know that there's like as much C.S. Lewis as anything else in here. So he's going to make a couple of appearances, but here is his first and his longest appearance. So it says this, God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free, but had no possibility of going wrong. But I can. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, or creatures that work like machines would hardly be worth creating. So of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it was worth the risk. If God thinks the state of war in the universe is a price that's worth paying for evil, that is for making a real world in which creatures can do real good or real harm, then we have to take it that that's a price worth paying. So evidently, if what we experience today is so bad, I have to then conclude that the love of God that we'll experience tomorrow in perfect relationship with Him must be infinitely better. And do you see that? How good, how loving, how great His love for us must be. Now, let's go back to the hot air balloon for a minute. Because there's a very interesting assumption that's implied inside of the question itself, how could a good God create evil? And that's the contrast between good and evil. Now, in order to ask this question in the first place, you have to agree that a distinction between these categories exists. Now, follow me for a second here. But it's like at the start of this message, we said that's a bit of an odd thing to say in the context of our modern, modern culture. You see, today, we've started to erase this divide between good and bad. Right now, it's up to the individual to define good and bad according to their individual preferences. Because one person's truth may not be another person's truth. It's why we're not allowed to make absolute statements, something like sex before marriage is bad. It's why we don't like this idea of sin, and we've even gone so far as to sanitize it from our language, because implied in the word sin is this moral code, a distinction between good and evil. Instead, we began to twist the moral knowledge that the tree in the Genesis story gave us into something that sounds a little bit more like hey, what's ever good for you is good for you as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. But the distinction between good and evil here signals the existence of something else, something that is greater than either of those two opposites. So when we have some type of visceral reaction to evil, right, cancer, unemployment, what we're saying is we're appealing to some basis upon which people should be healthy and they should be employed. We're differentiating between good and evil with a third thing that's outside of these things that makes us say like, hey, this is just not right. In other words, what we're using to measure an item can't also be that same item. There has to be a separate and an objective point of reference. Now, this is very important because when we're measuring something physical, say like an inseam on my pants, a measuring tape will do the job, right? But if we're trying to measure morality, the degree to which something is either good or evil Something physical won't cut it. That point of reference has to reside in the spiritual realm. So C.S. Lewis in his second appearance, he sums this up this way. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. 
But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So no doubt, we all feel that the world isn't as it should be. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people. And so it's natural to conclude that a good God can't exist if our world has spiraled out of control. But it comes back to this question of like, how do we know that the world has spiraled outside of control? It's only because somebody outside of us has said so. So Lewis continues on this way, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. Now, in the world of hot air balloons, we have instruments. We have a thermometer to tell us the difference in air temperature. To navigate our world, we need a different type of instrument. We need a compass or a conscious, more specifically. So this is where we pick back up in verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he, he being God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So at this point, Adam and Eve, they have a compass. They realize that they're naked and full of shame. They hide. Now, notice here, who's doing the hiding and who's doing the seeking? God's seeking us. We're hiding from him. And notice too, for the men in the room, notice God's phrasing. He calls out specifically to Adam. He says, man, or you, in the singular. He doesn't call out to Eve. And so what's Adam's response here? In verse 12, it says, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So Adam blames God. He says, this is your fault, God. You created Eve, you put her here with me. And so what Adam is doing is he is abdicating responsibility, which is still today the primary way that husbands and fathers fail. Like if you think about the stereotypically classic image in media of the father who is totally disengaged, what is that? He comes home from work, he turns on the TV, he sits in front of it, totally disconnected and unaware of what's happening in the family around him. And like typically there's you know a, a son or kids sitting on the front porch with like a baseball mitt just waiting for their father to look at them, to engage with them. It's classic. And so what we're finding now is an explanation for everything that we feel has gone wrong in life. And what I find so fascinating about this story is that its level of insight into the human condition, it's on point. Even though it was written multiple millennia ago, it sounds wildly accurate for what we experience today. So for example, God referring to Eve, after this says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. A lot of people here can say, check, that meets reality. Now, continues, and this word desire comes back. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so what we find here is that our world now is ultimately one where the desires for which we were wired, which we were created for, are never gonna transpire inside of our lifetime. For the woman, that looks like a longing for perfect relationship, to feel fully loved, fully accepted. And then God says to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, 
and you will eat the plants of the field. So man's work, his desire to create something meaningful, something that is fulfilling for him, becomes a struggle because life's broken and his work never ends up filling the desire for which he was given. I mean, I feel this so often. On a weekly basis, founding a company, trying to grow it, it's hard. And at times it sucks because the things that are in my head don't turn out in reality. And it's never as fulfilling as I want it to be. And so the point here, you take both of those things together. The point is that sin comes with consequences. Yet, here's some warm air coming in to fill us back up. We serve a good God, a God of love, of compassion, one who's our father, Yahweh, not just the creator, Elohim. So we see this in verse 21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, in the ancient context, garments were very, very important. People who are listening to Jesus's parables later would have connected the parable of the prodigal son back to this moment where in the garden, God is creating garments for Adam and Eve. And that parable is of a son who leaves his father. He takes his inheritance. He goes his own way. He lives large. He squanders it, ultimately hurts himself and decides that it's time to return back to his father. <clears throat> so it says this in Luke, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no wor longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And so this cloak, this welcome back into the family, this is a foreshadowing of what's gonna continue in the story. And that story is what we're gonna to continue to reveal and unpack as we go deeper and deeper into this sermon series. For example, we'll see verses like Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So from here, as we move out of chapter three in Genesis into the rest of the text, chapters four through 11, honestly, it's a lot of the same. The story continues to spiral out of control and spiral in ways that seems a little all too familiar to us. Next up in Genesis four, it's a story about Cain and Abel. Really, it's a story about anger, jealousy, one brother murdering his own brother. Next up is natural disaster, mass death. The world becomes so wicked that God wipes it all off the face of the earth, but for Noah and his family. Then after that, as the world begins to repopulate, we see this story of the Tower of Babel. People create a tower, they try to reach the heavens in order to be made equal with God. And so now we come back to this original sin, trying to become the gods of our own lives, to evade death, to redefine good and evil for ourselves, to go our own way. And what do we find? We find death, we find harm while living our own way, and we're unable to force our will into the world. And the insight that this story holds for us is wild. It's our story. And one way to read this is history, an eyewitness account, one man, one woman, a talking snake. Another way to read this is metaphor. You see, in the original language, Adam or Adam means mankind. Eve means life, and the serpent was a well-known symbol for evil in the ancient times. So something to consider here, and it's less important whether or not there was a talking snake. What's more important is that this isn't just a story in the Bible, this is our story. It's the story that is divinely inspired and based on the reality that is still playing out today. 
It speaks to exactly what is going on in culture. The redefinition of the moral compass, subordinating God's design to our desires, elevating our tastes over His truth, all in an effort to get what our twisted hearts want, while avoiding the shame and the natural consequences of sin. This is the moment that we live in, and it's nothing new. It's literally thousands of years old. Now, in closing, you may feel like you agree with Stephen Fry, that actor, activist, who would like to tell God, how dare you? Every day you look around and you see headlines of refugees, racism, rape, and you think, how could a good God exist amidst all this evil? With the cold, bitter air of the world surrounding us, how is anybody supposed to have enough faith to keep them afloat? Maybe you even still sense the snake whispering you today. Does God really want you to deny yourself? Would he not ask you to be happy? But as our hot air balloon ride reminded me, the difference between good and evil, light and dark, the categories themselves points to the existence of a God, not only a creator, but a father, somebody who loves us and wants nothing but our ultimate happiness, which will always come from living in line with his design. And like instruments in a hot air balloon, a compass or a thermometer, when we're crashing back down to the earth, we're out of fuel, what tells us there's a problem can't also save us. We need a savior to lift us up when the cold air is threatening to overwhelm us. We depend on God's love, his warmth, and this is how the story continues. Actually, back in verse 15, there's a subtle, but the very first reference made to Jesus, our savior. You see, there's hope, a beautiful ending and a beautiful story that's still being written by our father, a cloak that's waiting to wrap us up on a cold day. Because as John's gospel reminds us, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So in a world that's lost the contrast between warm, good, evil, cold, let's commit to living warm lives, glowing compassion, just as Jesus did to meet our neighbors surrounded by a cold, hard world. And when we live like this, when we live with that contrast, I believe that's how people will finally see the light on their darkest days. Now, let me pray for us and then we'll move into communion. Dear Lord, thank you um, for giving us your love, for not leaving us in the path that we've chosen, but for bringing us a savior, somebody to lift us up, to wrap us up and keep us warm in a cold world. And Lord, would we continue to depend and look to you and to not forget the uh, true character in your love and the good gifts that you've given to us. Lord, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us for everything that you do. It's your name that we pray, Lord. Amen.